This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. It's、uh, my pleasure to welcome you to this Rand convened panel briefing on the question of United States aid to Egypt.、Um, I'd like to introduce our moderator today, Jeff Martini,、uh, sitting in the middle. Jeff is a Middle East analyst at Rand who focuses on political and security challenges in the region. He's carried out extensive field work in Egypt since the 2011 revolution. Those efforts have culminated in reports on the evolution of Egypt's civil-military relations and the challenge of generational divides within the Muslim Brotherhood.、Uh, earlier this year, he published his groundbreaking "Voting Patterns in Post-Mubarak Egypt." This analyzed electoral returns from all four of the post-Mubarak elections in order to glean insights as to the levels of support. For the various parties across Egypt's regions,、um, and with that, let me turn it over to Jeffrey to introduce our panelists and kick it off. Thanks. Well, thank you, Win, and, and thanks to everyone for coming today. We've got a great turnout.、Um, as you know, we're here to discuss、uh, developments in Egypt,、uh, the U.S.-Egyptian relationship, and、uh, and the big question of assistance, which has been taking up so much time. Um, I'd like to introduce、uh, our two featured speakers today.、Um, I'll begin with Dr. Stephen Cook.、Uh, Dr. Cook is the Hasib Sabah Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's an expert、uh, not only in Middle East and、uh, Arab politics, but also、uh, Turkish politics and U.S. Middle East policy.、Um, he's got a very well-reviewed recent book on Egypt that you might be familiar with. But、uh, among people who are interested in civil-military relations, I think something that's notable is is、uh, Steve. Stephen wrote a book, uh, uh, "Ruling but Not Governing," that's had pretty amazing staying power. And was actually、um, cited in the Senate Foreign Relations testimony on the,、uh, today that that Michelle was testifying at. So we're getting Michelle、uh, straight from that testimony、um, here today. So to introduce、uh, Dr. Michelle Dunn,、uh, Dr. Dunn is a vice president at the Atlantic Council. She also runs the Rafiq Hariri Center、um, at the Atlantic Council. She served in government.、Um, For the White House, a, a National Security Council staff, and also in the State Department. And、uh, something that's notable about Michelle is that、uh, she's also the uh, uh, co-chair of the Egypt Working Group, which, since the January 25th,、uh, 2011 revolution in Egypt, has been putting out uh, uh, policy recommendations、uh, for the White House and for Congress. And for those of you who want something other than the status quo,、uh, I think it's very constructive alternatives, and I'd encourage you to to look into their reports or their statements. So, without further ado, we're here to talk about Egypt,、uh, and I'd like to start with Michelle. And, and Michelle, ask you,、um, you know, a lot has happened in, in the past several weeks in terms of the、uh, June 30th rebel campaign leading to the ouster of Morsi、uh, on July 3rd. Um, since then, we've seen uh, violence, uh, and there's really been two narratives that have emerged. One is, you know, we had a popular impeachment where、uh, Morsi and the Brotherhood might have overreached,、uh, governed in a unilateral and majoritarian fashion, and and、uh, and got their comeuppance from the people. And then, on the other hand, you've got、uh, a narrative、uh, which says, "Look, the military stepped in and, and deposed a democratically elected government, regardless of,、uh, of the mistakes they made in governing." How do you see what what transpired in Egypt, and is this a trans transition that's off its rails? Or、um, thank you, Jeff, and thanks to Rand for inviting me to be with you.、Uh, Today, one thing I have to say to correct the record: actually, the working group on Egypt was formed in February of 2010,、oh, okay. a year before the Egyptian <laughs> Revolution, because we were concerned. We thought there were, you know, there was trouble. There was some kind of change coming in Egypt. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but we thought that that the forces of a change of change were afoot in Egypt, and that U.S.、Uh, policy toward Egypt wasn't. Uh, adapting as it should.、Uh, regarding what has happened in the last few、uh, weeks, look,、uh, Mohammed Morsi was a, a failed president. was a, Was a very,、um, you know, did a really a poor job. The Muslim Brotherhood did did a poor job. They were、um, 
trying to run things on their own without really building bridges to other political groups. They forced through a constitution that, you know, had, uh, you know, they they managed to get a a majority in a referendum, but not that many people participated in the referendum. So they kind of forced through a constitution over the objections of a lot of people. And, um, you know, they were in a kind of a a situation of political stalemate. The the economy was failing. So it was a bad situation. And the... um, public sentiment that was building up against Morsi uh, was real. You know, some of it was specifically against Morsi and the Brotherhood. Some of it, I think, was just frustration, you know, two and a half years after a revolution and people are feeling that, that life is bad and getting worse and so forth. My concern is with uh, how it played out. If you will look at the the uh, the, the Tamarod campaign, the rebel campaign that you mentioned, Jeff, called for an early presidential election, right? Morsi was only one year into a four-year term. They said there should be an early election. Uh, and there's even a provision in the Egyptian constitution for calling a referendum on uh, on any important question, presumably this one as well. That's not what happened. There was not an early election. I think it would have been so much uh, better a message, more powerful, and also much more salutary for a country that is trying to become a democracy to remove a bad president through an election as opposed to through uh, what was a military coup um, with a lot of public support. That is true. But military coups often have a lot of public support. I don't think this is uh, unique in that regard. So uh, what I'm concerned about is that, you know, there are intentions now to just sort of hit the reset but, you know, button and, and start, uh, start Egypt's transition again. There are some, some good steps the transitional government has taken. The transitional government has some very good people in it. They've done one thing I think which is right, which is to put the writing of the Constitution or rewriting of the Constitution before the holding of the next elections and so forth. But... Uh, there is this, you know, tremendously angry and I think entirely predictable reaction of the Muslim Brotherhood, and there's um, and there's a real campaign of repression now against the Muslim Brotherhood as well, and I see Egypt heading into a, a very troubled period, and you know whatever good intentions that people in the transitional government might have. Uh, and, you know, we saw the defense, the, the the military, although they removed Morsi, they tried to put civilians out front and say, we're not going to rule directly as we did in those 18 months after Mubarak. This time, you know, civilians are going to make the decision. But then, you know, we've seen that the defense minister became the deputy prime minister, which to me suggests he has authority over more than just military affairs. And then we saw him take this move yesterday where he's called for people to come out in the streets uh, and sort of underline his mandate. So uh, this is troubling, I think. You know, I'm really, really worried. I I think, you know, Egypt's transition wasn't going well, and it it needed a reset in a way, but I think a reset through some sort of uh, democratic political process, which might have taken probably much longer to carry out than the the, uh, demonstrations and the coup that all happened in the space of four days, uh, would have been a much better way to go. Well, Stephen, if I could, I'd like to direct the same question at you. Is there any way you could expand on Michelle's points about uh, kind of the depth of the political polarization that that Egypt's facing? And then uh, Michelle did, uh, although sounding very pessimistic, she did talk about some of the silver linings, if there are any, which would be, you know, the more rational sequencing of holding constitution, doing the constitution writing before uh, uh, the elections. Does that in any way offset the the, the concerning trends, or, or is it as bad as, as Michelle is describing? No, it's as bad as Michelle is describing. Um, I think that the, the one silver lining is the fact that, and the one thing to like about the transition process is that the sequence is correct. Uh, the, in the transition from, from Mubarak to Morsi, the sequence was backwards. There were reasons. The, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces had reasons for that, but it was backwards, and it destabilized the political arena. Now there's a more rational uh, sequence, uh, but you have a destabilized political arena. I mean, what we're talking about in Egypt right now is we're talking about a toxic mix of uncertain politics, a failing economy, 
an autonomous military, and an angry opposition. Uh, that is a recipe for a slide towards authoritarianism. It doesn't set the stage for uh, a democratic transition. Uh, you mentioned polarization. What has been, um, I think, one of the more stunning aspects of what's happened, besides the fact that there was a coup, uh, Michelle's 100 um, percent, having written a book on civil-military relations, coups always have civilian support. Either the military goes out and finds civilians to work with or civilians go and enlist the military to, uh, to, to, uh, in, a, in, a, in an effort to seek political redress. Uh, if, you, if you say that it's not a coup, uh, that you can't change the definition of a coup based on how you feel politically about something at, at a particular moment. This was a, a, a coup d'etat. Um, you have, as a result of this coup, a Muslim Brotherhood, that uh, is refusing the, uh, the, the less than sincere offers of an inclusive political process on the part of people who really have no intention and are using the coup d'etat as a mechanism of political mobilization to delegitimize uh, this process. There seems to be very little connection actually between the political process as it has been set forward by the military and this transitional government and actual conditions on the ground. Um, all of the same problems that existed before Morsi's ouster exist, and now you've added more on top of them. And that's why I say, no matter how you look at the situation with whatever rose-colored glasses you want to, the uh, a logical conclusion of what is happening and the destabilization of the political situation, in order to maintain some sort of political control, the military is going to have to engage in authoritarian measures. And that's precisely where we're going. Okay, well, I do want to try to transition to the U.S.-Egyptian relationship and this aid question. But before I do, maybe I could stay with you, Stephen, and, and ask you, you know, given how dismal it is, how bad could it get? What's the bottom here? You said perhaps a move towards authoritarianism. In terms of the civil conflict, uh, could we see that evolving in a, uh, even on a, in an Algeria-type scale? Yeah, or? This, this, was the, this was the idea running around Washington a couple weeks ago. Michelle wrote about it. I wrote about it. You know, is Egypt Algeria? Is Egypt Pakistan? Is Egypt Turkey? Is Egypt Indonesia? Um, there's all these uh, kinds of things that people are, are asking about. Certainly, there are some parallel political dynamics between Egypt in the summer of 2013 and Algeria in the winter of 1991 and 1992. Um, but I think that it's more likely uh, that we'll see not a replay of Algeria in Egypt, but a replay of Egypt in Egypt. Uh, people tend to forget that there was a low-level insurrection against the Egyptian government from 1992 to 1997. Um, it was uh, something that the military was involved in, both directly and, and indirectly. And one can imagine a similar kind of dynamic playing itself out. Um, the Brotherhood certainly has used uh, thinly veiled language of violence and martyrdom. The, Egypt already has a problem of extremism in, um, in Sinai. It's playing itself out in Sinai right now. That, to me, seems to be uh, a, a possibility. Of course, no one can, uh, can predict the future. But uh, I think that the Algeria model or the idea that uh, Egypt will uh, deteriorate into some sort of widespread civil uh, conflict, I think it should be within the realm of our concern. I think that there are more likely outcomes, and the more likely outcome to me is something along the lines of what we saw in, in, in 1992, 1997. Let me just say something, though, more broadly about what's been happening. This is part of a broader process that is not just a part of the January 25th uprising, but the January 25th uprising is part of a broader process in which Egyptians are engaged in these high-stakes debates about the future trajectory of the country, something that has been going on for a very, very long time. It, was not, it wasn't permitted to be open in the way that it is now. Uh, certain groups weren't permitted to take part in it in the way that they have now. And the stakes are likely to be extraordinarily high, as we've seen. And as a result, we see the military taking extraordinary actions. This is a military that didn't intervene directly in politics for many, many, many years. They ruled, but they didn't govern. Their influence was felt through the informal institutional linkage between themselves and the presidency. That linkage is now gone, and they're more autonomous. And uh, we're entering a new phase in that overall struggle for Egypt to define itself, and I think it's going to be a much darker one. 
Well, Michelle, if this is a sort of back to the future type scenario in which we regress to the 1990s, mid 1990s, when there was a kind of a low level insurgency, particularly in, in Upper Egypt, uh, what would be the measures that could be taken to avoid that? Is it about political inclusion and reconciliation? And, and do you see any will on the part of, of the, the current powers to be to, to seek that out? Uh, first, I agree with Stephen that that uh, I mean, I, in terms of a return to the kind of um, violence and low-level insurgency we saw in the 1990s, basically Egypt's already there. It's already happening. You know, it's certainly happening like in the Sinai. It's <laughs> starting to happen in you know uh, Mansoura and other places. And one thing that gives me concern that it could actually be worse than the 1990s is the fact that it's a much more heavily armed society now. Uh, over the last couple of years, unfortunately, you know, a lot of small arms flowed into Egypt from Libya, and with a de uh, with escalating crime and with the police having sort of pulled off the streets for a while, uh, a lot of Egyptians, you know, acquired arms to protect themselves. But that makes me worried. You know, we're we're seeing these uh, clashes between you know, Morsi supporters and uh, I, I, and either people, you know, who are against Morsi or, or the, you know, security forces, military, and so forth. Uh, and there are just, there's just a lot more, more guns and so forth around. So that makes me worried it could be worse. Now, what could be done to avert this? I have one idea, which is don't call millions of people into the streets. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I'm, I find this worrisome that the, the defense minister, you know, yesterday asked Egyptians to pour back into the streets in the same number as they did on June 30th in order to give him a mandate to fight terrorism, was what he said. And the, uh, you know, and then the Brotherhood is now announcing that they're going to have, you know, 35 different marches in different cities all over the country in favor of Morsi. I really, I, I cannot tell you what's going to be happening in Egypt 24 hours from now, but I'm pretty sure it isn't going to be nice to look at, you know. I mean, so that's, I mean, one thing is I, I think that, uh, you know, we would need to see the leadership and particularly, you know, the government and the, the defense minister pull back from street politics a bit and pull back from trying to use the street to make their political points because, of course, that's it's a very risky tactic in terms of the, uh, you know, escalation of violence. We already saw an incident uh, just, you know, a little more than a, a week ago in which, um, I don't know what the final estimate is, somewhere between 50 and 80 people were killed in a single incident. And we're seeing, you know, it's reg becoming regular that, you know, 10 people every day or something like that. So that's one thing, pullback from street politics. Now, you're sort of alluding, I think, Jeff, to the talk about inclusion, reconciliation, so forth. Look, I see uh, what's happening right now is a, there's a lot of posturing, I would say, on both sides, on both the government side, the transitional government, and the brotherhood side. On the, on the part of the transitional government, on the one hand, they are speaking the language of inclusion. And they, they speak all the time about inclusion. There is a new minister for national reconciliation. They said that they offered the brotherhood portfolios in the cabinet and so forth. So the, the, the prime minister, Prime Minister Biblawi, and others are speaking this language of inclusion. But at the same time, there are tremendous repressive measures being taken against the Brotherhood, right? Not only President Morsi, but about two dozen others of the top leadership of the Brotherhood and their political party um, are detained. They have not yet been charged with anything. They are held incommunicado. No one hears from them. Um, and there are rumors every day in the press what they're going to be charged with. This one's going to be charged with treason. That one's going to be charged with supporting terrorism. I mean, very serious crimes. So that's certainly a form of pressure, you know, against the Brotherhood. Uh, and there are lots of other things going on. Uh, you know, Brotherhood, the, all the people who Morsi appointed and so forth to various bodies are being expunged and uh, so forth. So, you know, is that a message of inclusion? <laughs> I would say there's, you know, there's real significantly conflicting signals coming from the government. Uh, 
on, on the side of the brotherhood, you know, more or less they are, they are uh, first of all, the brotherhood's in a bit of disorder. They've been somewhat decapitated here by their leadership being put in prison, which I'm sure was, you know, done deliberately. Those who are on the outside, I think, are, you know, trying to come up with their positions and their policies. For now, they're trying to stand on principle. Uh, and this is one of the most unfortunate things about the fact that Morsi was removed by coup and not by election. Because he was removed by coup, the narrative of the Brotherhood now is, you know, we elected a majority to parliament. That parliament was dissolved by a court order. We elected a president. That president was removed by military coup. We're the ones who play the democratic rules game by the rules and, you know, are not allowed to govern, and they completely can walk away from their tremendous failures in governance. Which I think, you know, if 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 Morsi had been voted out, they would have been forced to confront that, confront their failures. Now they just completely take that out of the the narrative. The Brotherhood for now is standing on Morsi's the legitimate president. Uh, nothing can happen until he is reinstated. Uh, they've put out some signals. Well, yes, we would now be ready to go for uh, an early presidential election, uh, a national unity cabinet that included other political forces, the rewriting of the electoral law and the Constitution, all the things the opposition were asking for for months and that the Brotherhood steadfastly refused. They're saying now they're willing to accept. But, you know, it's most likely too late for any of that. You know, what can emerge out of this? Look, I mean, there are, you know, there are some Egyptians, there may also be some Europeans engaged in uh, efforts to, you know, get the two sides talking and come up with some kind of an arrangement. I, I just think, unfortunately, what, what Stephen says is right. The signals, the, the more important signals we see right now are uh, what's going on in the streets and the signals of repression and possible return to authoritarianism and so forth. The, the, the signals that would indicate some sort of compromise, dialogue, moving forward in a peaceful political way are, are very tenuous signals. Just let me add to that for one second. I, mean, I think the political incentives of the Brotherhood and of the military run in the opposite direction of inclusion and reconciliation. Uh, it's too important for them to do otherwise. Even if there are people of goodwill within each of, the each of those organizations, they don't have any political incentive uh, to de-escalate uh, right now. And as we know, and I'm saying it here in Capitol Hill, politicians often do things that are for their own interests that are, do not uh, are suboptimal outcomes for the social good. That's precisely the way the incentives line up right now for the Egyptian Armed Forces and the Muslim Brotherhood, and it's going to lead to a suboptimal outcome tomorrow. Okay, so I think to keep us on track, we're going to have to move that discussion a bit to the backdrop and then talk more about the uh, U.S.-Egyptian relationship. Stephen, if I could stay with you, you've written in the past, um, you know, already previous to this, that the, rela the basis of the relationship feels a bit antiquated. You know, it's based on Cold War precepts. It's based on, um, you know, peace between uh, Israel and, and Egypt that was concluded a long time ago. It's based on, you know, this, this narrative of, of Egypt's strategic importance through overflight and expedited transit through the Suez, but it doesn't feel of the present. Can you talk about what is it that, that you know, Egypt's a major non-NATO ally. W what is the basis of this relationship? Well, the basis of the relationship is exactly what you have just articulated, and it it's left over from the mid 1970s. And I don't know anybody who does business the way they business now the way they did in the in the mid 1970s. There are some rationales that date back to that that continue to make sense, and that is uh, upholding the Israel-Egyptian peace treaty. Although I think that that is something that's been institutionalized after over all these years. Uh, the transit through the Suez Canal. Uh, the Pentagon attaches great importance to it. The Pentagon also attaches great importance to our overflight uh, of, of Egypt. I think because we have invested so much in Egypt since the mid-1970s, $77 billion, that we are caught. There are sunk costs uh, uh, resulting from our investment in Egypt. It's, a very, it's very difficult for people to think outside of the way in which we have been doing uh, business uh, with the Egyptians. If you say to the Egyptians, if you say to the, the DOD, well, what if we overflew some other 
country on the way to the Gulf. They look at you like they're, you have, are, have an idea that is somehow beyond the stretch of, uh, of imagination. I don't think that the Egyptians are going to prohibit us from transiting through the Suez Canal. And we certainly can overfly, uh, overfly other countries on the way to the Persian Gulf. But what we need to think about these things are symptomatic of something different about the U.S.-Egypt relationship. And here is a great opportunity for us to rethink it. Why do we, why do we attach so much importance to the Suez Canal? Why do we attach so much importance to the overflights? Why do we attach so much importance to the peace treaty? Egypt is not important intrinsically for Egypt's case, in our strategic thinking. It's about someplace else. And if it's a really just about someplace else. There are other ways of going about doing this business without having to be involved in Egypt the way we were. It certainly was appropriate at the time that we were involved in a strategic relationship. Perhaps that strategic relationship has run its course. Perhaps Egypt's just important. You know, over the course of those 30 years, not only did we give the military $1.3 billion, but it also sucked us into Egyptian politics. And we became a critical and negative factor in Egyptian politics. Now, the uprising of January 25th was not about the United States, but there was a very important component about it that had to do with national dignity and national empowerment. Take that and think about Egypt's broad history, and Egyptians don't really want us to play the role that we played any longer. And we're having a hard time maintaining that, and I think that we should oblige them and think about new ways of doing business with Egypt. If we are compelled, if we still believe that we have to have a military-to-military relationship with the Egyptians, well, maybe it should be a different kind of military-to-military relationship. Maybe we shouldn't be supplying the same kinds of weaponry to the Egyptians that we've been supplying. Maybe we should think about what their real security needs are. What are our real security needs? We've just been doing business the way we've been doing business because it's easier that Michelle, I suspect you agree with Stephen's critique, and since you've just had hours of grueling testimony and probably no lunch, why don't you uh, solve his problem, yeah, which is which is to you know Keep find a new find a I'm new basis for the relationship? Um, you know, Stephen says the old basis doesn't work anymore. Well, what's the new basis, or should we should we not have such a, a, a tight relationship? Let me with let me Cairo? clarify. I'm not sure it doesn't work anymore. It seems outmoded. It's not of the present moment. Okay. It's of something when I was in diapers. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you to, to the logical conclusion of your argument, okay. which is, you know, it's one, it's one or the other. You've got to find a new basis, update it, or you've got to have a different relationship with Egypt. Uh, look, Jeff, Egypt, you know, Egypt is a really important country, right? It's the, uh, you know, it's the most populous Arab country. It's, it's located, uh, you know, very strategically on the sort of land bridge between Africa and Asia. And from the time that the United States started to take a, an active role in the Middle East, right, basically after World War II, when we kind of inherited the mantle of leadership from the British, uh, the, the, the United States has always understood that in whatever you want to do in the Middle East, whether it's diplomatic, whether it's military, it, it, it certainly helps to have Egypt on your side. And actually, it's really bad to have Egypt working against you. That's not impossible. So, you know, we went through, you know, even during the, the years of Gamal Abdel Nasser, whom, you know, with whom the United States had major problems. I mean, we we, you know, we kept trying if we could only fix it up with Egypt, right? So I think, you know, that, that continues to be important. And with Egypt now going through what I think is going to be a long and difficult series of changes with an uncertain outcome, right? Egyptians said they wanted to become a democracy after the fall of Mubarak. Are they going to make it there? It's hard <coughs> to say at this point. You know, the, the current phase is not an especially promising one, but they but they still could make it and it could easily take 15, 20 years, or or whatever. I, I would like to see the United States still having a relationship with Egypt. I don't want to just write Egypt off and say, too hard, too difficult. And I, I'm not saying that's what you were saying, Stephen, but there are a lot of other people saying that. Um, I agree with you, though, that yeah, we've been conducting this relationship on autopilot for years now. Uh, and and it, you know everything is 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 untouchable. Can't do anything new. Can't do anything different. Everything has to be done just the way it was more or less back in the seventies. We also made a mistake, I think, over time, which was we've kept the military assistance flowing steadily, uh, and we brought our economic assistance way down. 
much lower than than what it used to be, right? We were we've been giving steadily 1.3 billion in military assistance. The economic assistance, I believe, used to be up near a billion dollars a year. Right. And and uh, in recent years, it was down to $250 million. And in fact, since Mubarak left, we've given very, very little, much less than that in economic assistance. So, And then the country has huge economic needs. Um, uh, and, and so both the, the, the shape of the military assistance, what it's being used for, the fact that it's being used to buy F-16s and tanks for a war that Egypt's never going to fight, you know, when uh, they really could use other kinds of um, assistance, help with, you know, border security and, and things like that. So the military assistance itself is very outmoded and, and ossified uh, kind of assistance. And even the balance between military and economic assistance, I think, should be revisited. So I, I think what we're in order for here is a thorough review of our policy in Egypt, our interests in Egypt, as Stephen said, what's the basis of this relationship? What are our goals? How are U.S. interests being served here? <clears throat> now, my own feeling is that uh, if we want Egypt to be a, a security partner for the United States, and if we want Egypt to be a peace partner for Israel and play a responsible role in the, Egypt, in the region, then we do need to be in favor of Egypt eventually reaching democracy. Because uh, Egyptian society has changed, and people want a government that is accountable to them, that respects the rights of citizens, um, and that they can change if they're not happy with through elections and so forth. So they, you know, this is this is what people want, and I it, there may be a return to authoritarianism. Now, I don't think that will be stable. I think that will not be a lasting situation, and that will not lead to the kind of stability and prosperity that uh, we want to see in Egypt. So we need to take an interest in this, but yes, this this whole relationship badly needs a rethink and a renovation. You know, Stephen, you just mentioned 1986, which was the high point in aid to Egypt in terms of the relative uh, relative to Egypt's economy. So at that time, it was uh, equivalent to 7% of the Egyptian economy. Today, it's about 0.7%, so, uh, you know, uh, 10 times less, um, which, which raises the question of leverage. Uh, you had mentioned that we, the United States, want some things from Egypt, so the leverage doesn't just want run in, in one direction. And, and frankly, although $1.5 billion would make a big difference in my life, it, it doesn't make a big difference relative to the Egyptian economy. Who, who has the leverage here? Is, is the U.S. in the driver's seat in any way? You know, uh, the now foreign minister of Egypt, Nabil Fahmi, once said to me when he was the ambassador here, said that Egypt... The U.S.-Egypt relationship is like a mature marriage. Um, sometimes Egypt has the upper hand, and sometimes the United States has the upper hand in the relationship. I, I think overall, uh, our leverage over Egypt has been overblown and half-baked. Uh, I think, yes, we have invested $77 billion over uh, more than three decades now, but it doesn't translate into a lot of money, certainly on the economic side. And on the military side, we've been giving the same $1.3 billion since 1983, which if you do the math, it's worth considerably less, and things that they want are considerably more expensive and, and so on and so forth. And when you sit down and talk to the military, they complain about this endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. But there are some very important things that we want. The problem is we've never tested it. We've always said, you can't touch it, it's too important. We've never said, you know what, we're going to fly over Turkey to the Persian Gulf or whatever. We've never tested the Egyptians on this. So naturally, we don't have any leverage because we never, we've always put ourselves in the hands of the Egyptian armed forces and said, can we overfly your country 50 times on Wednesday? Yes, okay, then well, it's extraordinarily important. But we've never said, we're, gonna own, we're not going to overfly your country. We're going to overfly a bunch of other countries. We've never tested this proposition at all. And that's why our leverage has been half-baked and overblown. You only have leverage if you actually can make a threat and carry through. And we haven't been willing, uh, willing to do that. And over 
30, 35 years of behaving this way, the military doesn't ever believe we're going to walk away. Yeah, they carry on a big fight every time something bubbles up here in Congress about docking their aid and so on and so forth. An army of lobbyists and members of the Egyptian diplomatic community and, you know, old secretaries of state and secretaries of defense come up and say, no, you got to get this stuff to Egypt, Egypt's strategic ally. Very, very important to us. But by and large, that, and, and we always sign a national security waiver, suggests to me they have the leverage on us rather than we have the leverage on them. They have the hand. We don't because we've never, ever tested these propositions. As Michelle pointed out, and Michelle was deeply involved in these conversations when she was in government, nobody has ever said, let's try this out. Let's try something new. Everything was sacred for a variety of reasons that were developed in the mid-1970s. Okay, Michelle, so should we test Stephen's counterfactual? And I don't mean overflying Turkey 50 times a day. I mean, I'm just using that as a... Right. Should we, should we think about um, cutting off aid, suspending aid, if you will, uh, to send a message? Uh, uh, there was a, kind of a mealy-mouthed message, I would say, sent in terms of uh, holding up the delivery of four F-16s. Uh, should there be uh, a stronger uh, message sent? Um, you know, first of all, I want to say we, we, we have to be realistic, right? The United States is not going to dictate what's going to happen inside of Egypt, right? I mean, this is not the way foreign relations happen. Uh, you know, unless you're willing to invade a country or something like that, you're, you know, you're, you, you can have some influence, right? So first of all, we have to be realistic, Right. Uh, sometimes that leads people to go all the way to the other uh, uh, side and say we have no influence whatsoever. Right. Uh, I, I and I think that this this argument about the money. Look, uh, you know, we, I don't think we should see our influence as constituted purely in dollars and cents. For example, the U.S. Egyptian military relationship brings benefits to the Egyptian military that are beyond the $1.3 billion. There are, and, you know, Stephen's the, the expert on this. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in terms of training and transfer of technology and joint exercises and things like that. Similarly, our diplomatic relationship with the government of Egypt uh, brings benefits, things like, for example, that we might... Um, you know, speak up in favor of Egypt at the International Monetary Fund and things like that, right? So there are the value of Egypt to Egypt of having a friendly relationship with the United States is not purely the dollars and cents that go in aid. Now, you asked me, Jeff, you know, should we suspend this to send a message? Uh, <coughs> I think we need to suspend it because of our law, right? We We have a law that is I think terribly clear that says that if a democratically uh, elected government or democratically elected leader is removed by military coup or decree, the United States suspends assistance until there is some kind of you know democratic government resumed. I don't know how we get around that at this point. I mean, unless we want to, you know, pass a waiver in the Congress or pass a new law or but with the law written the way it is now. Uh, it seems to me that we need to uh, respect our own law. Now, I, I don't want us to cut off our whole relationship with Egypt. Uh, I, I would like us to uh, respect our own law and suspend the assistance, but at the same time to say to the Egyptian military, look, we want to continue to have a relationship with you, and we are ready to resume this assistance as soon as you come through on the things that you yourself are saying you're going to do. So there shouldn't be a problem, right? You say you're bringing the country back to democracy and there will be a new constitution and elections and inclusion of all the political forces, including the brotherhood and so forth. And assuming you do what you, what you say you're doing, then, uh, then we, we won't have a problem and we can keep our military ties going. I think in that case... It, it would be up to the Egyptian military whether they wanted to cut off cooperation on things like cut off overflights or 
uh, you know, other kinds of aspects of the of the military relationship. Um, I think they would be unwise to do so. You know, it would be would be would be better for them to keep up their relationship with us, and and presumably the assistance could be could be resumed. Uh, in in terms of the the uh, suspension um, of the delivery of F-16s, yes, I think the administration had to do this if they were going to uh, have any credibility to what they're saying that, that whether or not we suspend assistance and is still under consideration. If they had gone ahead with the delivery of the F-16s, then, then the, uh, the idea that we you know, might very well have to suspend our assistance because of our own law would have had no credibility. So I guess the alternative to um, uh, cutting off the assistance would be to continue to play the kind of uh, linguistic gymnastics that we've been doing or, or pass one of these waivers. Uh, do you agree with Michelle that uh, we should uh, follow the letter of the law and in that sense? And uh, if so, what do you see as the consequences of, of potentially uh, suspending assistance to Egypt? Right. I've been, I've been playing with words over the course of the last three weeks, military intervention under the threshold of a coup. I thought that was going to be used to justify continuing going forward. Some sort of cir circumlocution that would get us off the hook from this very clearly stated law. And this was a very clear case of, uh, of, of, of a coup d'etat. Uh, it strikes me that if, we, if this is clear and this is our law, we should uphold our law and the consequences are that we will suspend aid, uh, suspend aid to the Egyptians, and I certainly agree with uh, with Michelle that we have influence in Egypt, but we should also be fairly clear-eyed in that if we do suspend the aid, it's not going to fundamentally make a difference in terms of the political calculations that the military or anybody else is making at this moment of crisis. It will certainly get them. Their attention, we've never, never suspended the delivery of anything to Egypt. We've suspended delivery of things to the Israelis, but we've never, ever done it with, uh, with the Egyptians. And it will get their, uh, get their attention. I think it will cause a, a momentary crisis in the Ministry of Defense, and people will lash out at us. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that, as Michelle points out, there are ancillary benefits of our military cooperation, uh, one of the reasons why I don't think the, the administration is all that serious and that the F-16 thing is, is symbolic, and it's symbolic to the extent that I think Michelle pointed out that our threat to cut off the aid has to be credible, and the way you do that is through the, the F-16s. But also we said, but Bright Star will continue. Believe me, the United States military doesn't need the Bright Star exercise, but the Egyptian military does. It needs it symbolically. It needs it financially. It needs it uh, 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 in a whole host of ways. And I think that it, we would have been sending actually a bigger message had we said you can have four F-16s, but you can't have upcoming when Bright Star. When is Bright Star in November? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that uh, in the current moment, the current crisis, the way in which the military, what I talked about before, those political incentives to do the things that they're doing, to call people in the street, to support the military in their fight against violence, that's not going to change anything. But it certainly will get their attention that we are thinking about changes to this relationship. We are reviewing what this relationship is about. It can't possibly be business as, uh, as always. But I do think that there might be some consequences for us. The military is, the officers are the only group of people who kind of sort of share our interests at the moment. Uh, I think the administration handled things quite badly over the course of the last year or so, in addition to squandering an opportunity to really uh, think about uh, the future direction of the relationship. But that may be something that it's we are willing to do. Again, these are a series of propositions that we haven't been willing to test. It strikes me that if our objective is to help foster a more democratic uh, and open, prosperous Middle East, Egypt is very important in that. And if this is the way in which, uh, in which we do it, and importantly, this is the way our laws are written, then I don't think we have much of a choice to do it. But it's not going to change things right now. So it, it strikes me maybe we've been talking a bit of shorthand, bright stars of biannual uh, military exercise that's held in Egypt. 
and to show that the Egyptians don't care that much about the training, they're actually they, they seek to do things like sell us water <laughs> and uh, and be compensated for the munitions well, they spend. Let, let me see. Um, but is, but yeah, I mean, the, the military military relationship is also about them helping them develop a defense industrial base and and, and so on. And there's there's a lot of things that go into this. Okay, so uh, because we have a Hill audience and we're seeking to inform uh, legislative staff as they move forward on these different proposals, I want to dig into one that's probably got the most attention recently, which was the proposal to uh, that it sounds like has support from Lindsey Graham and, and Patrick Leahy uh, about dividing the assistance up into four tranches and then having uh, – the, the, the first tranche would actually go ahead, but then having three conditions for the subsequent tranches. Michelle, do, uh, do you think this is a sensible policy? Is this something that uh, you personally view as, as a positive step forward? Um, well, I mean, on the one hand, I, I think we still have the issue of our law. Okay, so that's a, that's an important issue not to be just swept aside, I think. Um and now th this, um, so, uh, you know, that, that I'm not sure that this, this proposal quite deals with that. Uh, that sort of assumes that, for example, that we wouldn't observe this law, that we would pass a waiver or whatever and, and then proceed with the assistance, but within, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I, I have all the details, but, um, you know, what, the, what that proposal would do would be to... Um, introduce stronger conditionality, of course, conditionality related to things like civilian rule, free elections, respect for human rights has been in the legislation now for a couple of years, and it's been waived consistently each time uh, by the administration for national security reasons. So there's an attempt here, I think, to introduce stronger conditionality and to kind of tranche the assistance so that it, it doesn't all go once there are, there are sort of periodic stop points at which one has to reevaluate. Um, so, you know, that there could be, there could be benefits to that. Uh, the, that, that proposal also talks about some pretty specific things. Uh, and one thing that we have to bear in mind, I think, and this, this, related to the conditionality that was written in before. The more specific the conditionality is, the more likely it is to be overtaken by events because things are moving so so rapidly in Egypt. You know, every time there's been at least, you know, three sort of major changes since Mubarak was was removed. And every time there's a new new constellation of players and a new roadmap and we all think, oh, okay, here's what's going to happen now over the next couple of years. And it ends up being not the case. And I think that's, that could be very much what's going to happen now, right? That we have this new transitional government and new roadmap, and we start writing conditions relating to, to that, and then all of a sudden the whole thing, the apple cart is upset one more time. So that's one thing to bear in mind, you know, in, in writing legislation is maybe to keep conditions broad and things like that, understanding. I mean, there are certain broad principles that the United States should, should stand up for, uh, and and um, but realizing that specific conditions are are likely to keep changing. Let me let me just add one thing here. It, it strikes me that if we want to be effective in this area, as Michelle said, we have been very clear and detailed in our conditionality, and it's always been waived. So why do we have to have a national security waiver? Why why I mean we should write legislation that says this can these things can that is always the problem. The Egyptians are always doing stuff that undermines the conditionality, the conditions that we attach to the aid. And a Secretary of State is always writing a national, signing a national security waiver to restore aid. At the height of the Bush administration's push to promote democratic change in Egypt, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, Congress, there was a rescission of $200 million, 2007, put it right back. There's always this temptation, again, because we've never done anything, uh, anything differently. And I think, though, that it is this, this tranche, this, this idea of tranches is really putting the, the cart before the horse. We have this problem of this question of, of what the law actually now says. And then you have, uh, exactly as Michelle said, a situation that is going to change in months from now. I mean, what do we do when... 
There's an inauguration of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. I mean, you know, these are things that we can actually imagine now. So uh, that's why I think uh, broad principles, I don't know what we do about a national security waiver, which is always the instrument that has been used to explain away absolutely everything because we have to have this relationship the way it has been. I, I want to add one little point. Um, Stephen has said that we've we've never used the aid as leverage. Oh, we and, did one, yes. And, therefore, That's right. the, and you're, you're right in the main. There was this one little episode, That's right? That's right? right. I Back apologize. Back in 2002 uh, when there was a supplementary package of $133 million in economic assistance that was planned to go to Egypt. I mean, Congress had approved it and so forth. At the same time, there was this trial going on of uh, an American, Egyptian-American, uh, Sadadini Ibrahim civil society activist, very much a politicized uh, political trial and so forth. And he was convicted uh, and sentenced to seven years in prison. And uh, based on that, President Bush canceled the $133 million in uh, supplemental assistance. And he wrote to President Mubarak linking this directly and saying, I just can't justify giving you this supplemental assistance in view of the fact that you know, uh, you are uh, carrying out repression and so forth. Uh, what happened in Egypt? So initially, there was a very, very, you know, furious anti-American reaction. How dare you? Uh, how dare you tie aid to things related to our internal affairs and so forth? Then everything quieted down. And then six months later, uh, Sadadin Ibrahim was uh, allowed to go to an appeals court and he was acquitted and completely exonerated. And, of course, everyone denied this had nothing to do with the American pressure or the withdrawal of aid. And everyone will tell you that. But I'm just telling you this is the one episode. Okay. um, Shortly I want to open this up for questions because many of you may be working on this issue with your members and uh, you deserve a a chance to ask questions. But I do want to press uh, Stephen and Michelle a little bit on – this crafting of conditionality because it's very topical and it it might be something that would actually inform legislation. And the way I'd like to push back is say that I'm personally of two minds of whether you go broad in your conditionality or you go very specific. Um, You know, there are good reasons to go broad, uh, like Michelle and Stephen noted, and, and one reason to go broad is it's hard to anticipate Uh, the future developments, and when you go specific, you have a chance of being overrun uh, by events. The other reason to stay broad is you could float a proposal like Senator Leahy did in which he said, we'd like to have conditionality in which the Minister of Defense is a civilian, and then the Egyptian people can give you the finger and put in their constitution that he has to be a uniformed officer. So if you're not ready to pull the trigger on that, you you embarrass yourselves and, and lose some credibility. On the other hand, if you don't go specific, you get in this instance in which, for example, multiple uh, presidential candidates are uh, 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 not allowed to run for election. So does it trip your wire or not? And so it's, you know, it's, it, you always have that problem of, of, you know, do you stay broad or do you go specific? It's the same debate you have with declaratory policy or anything else. I think there's advantages to both, and, and I'd encourage you guys with your members to really think that through. I'm, I'm not contradicting Michelle or Stephen, but I think there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both, and that's one of the big policy questions. So uh, you guys are uh, – a, a number of you are legislative assistants, support members, or committees. We'd welcome your questions, and, and you'll get to hear from – from Michelle, who's just been talking to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and and Stephen, who was there vicariously because people were citing his book. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.